Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 Podcast, the podcast that explores the origins and development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. It's 1971. Yep, John Pertwee's second series of Doctor is just starting as the first of the comics we're going to talk about today was being published. It's an interesting one this week, listeners. What we're doing is we're telling a story that begins in the final issue of a series published by one publisher and then is picked up a couple of years later in the final issue of another series published by another publisher. Oh, <gasps> interesting. I hope you don't find it too interesting because I hope you've done some, some of your homework as usual. <laughs> Listen, this is one of those quite well-known quirks that sometimes happens when a creator moves from publisher to publisher. To cut a long story short, we are starting with issue 56 of Aquaman, published on the 5th of January 1971. Peter is going to tell you about the fantastic Nick Cardi cover. How could this comic possibly be cancelled with this issue, with this amazing cover? I know. We've got at the top the Aquaman logo. We've got in the top left corner Aquaman doing a fantastic dive in a little inset bubble with DC Aquaman above it. There's no actual DC Comics yeah. logo on this cover, apart from that we DC at the top. Well, that's what we had at this period. Mm-hmm. We had the little corner box with the name of the comic and a, and a little corner illustration. Yeah. yeah. We'll see a bit more of those in upcoming issues and of other things. Mm-hmm. We see a sprawling cityscape below us. I'm guessing it's going to be Detroit. Yes, what makes you think that? It's a big clue. Mm. And there's murky water at the side of the city, and coming out of this murky water is a giant creature. It's about to attack the city, and it looks hungry. And indeed, there's a big caption that says, The The creature that that devoured devoured Detroit. Detroit. But don't worry, folks, because apparently flying into action to tackle mm. this creature is Aquaman coming in in the bottom left-hand corner. And the weird thing is, there's a strange kind of almost realism to the cover, apart from Aquaman, who looks really cartoony. It's it's more the colouring, mm. really. It's the colouring really makes him look like a fish out of water on his own cover. <laughs> yeah, Nick Carney was doing some fantastic covers on Aquaman right about this time. My famous mid-2000s purge when I got rid of a lot of my Silver Age comics. This is one of several Aquaman comics that I kept just because the covers were all so good. Yeah, yeah the creature has a sort of grey tone shading to it. it. It looks like almost like an angry version of Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. And this is what I always call a bit of a Defenders cover. And what I mean by that is it's very evocative and very, very exciting. But you'd be hard pushed to find a panel or any sequence in the story that actually really reflects what's taking place in the cover. Very true. Defenders 37, 38, run about that sort of period. They're the peak for that sort of thing. <laughs> my favourite one is Back, my fellow defenders, Clear must not be stopped. Being strange, she's turning the sun into a fireball. Because it looks like they're all top of a building and Clear's doing something that affects the sun. Mm-hmm. And then there's a sequence in the story when things get a bit warm because the sun kind of glows a bit in the sky, but it's not something that Clear does. <laughs> and Doctor Strange and Luke Cage don't have that exchange. And there's also a caption on the cover of that issue, I think it's 38, that says, and if all this wasn't enough, what the hell's happening to the Hulk? And the Hulk's, I don't think the Hulk's even in that issue. It's crazy. That's why they're wondering. You know, it's like, what is yeah. happening to the Hulk? He's off having adventures in his own comic. He was. So this cover is just like, as it is, it's wonderful, mm. but it's not entirely representative. You could be forgiven for sort of thinking, oh, I want my, my five pence back, please, Mr. Newsagent. 
We're not going to do a full read of issue 56 of Aquaman, boo, or indeed the other comic that we're going to talk about, but I have prepared a full summary, Excellent. so I will go through that with you now. The issue starts with a married couple called Ethel and George who bicker as they watch the Warren Savin show on television. Aquaman is to be a guest on the show, but it's interrupted by a special news bulletin that reports a state of emergency being declared in Detroit. This is due to a growth of strange green algae that is threatening to burst from Lake Erie and deluge, that's the word they use, Detroit and its surrounding areas. It's reported that the algae growth has been caused by a perpetual conditional daylight created by a mysterious satellite covered in mirrors reflecting sunlight back onto Earth that has appeared in space and no one knows where the satellite came from. Television cuts back to Warren Savin, who informs the audience that Aquaman has left the studio in a bit of a hurry. And we cut to see Aquaman making his way to Detroit by sort of jumping into the water and swimming as quickly as possible, where he plans to look up an old friend who was a police scientist to try and see if he can get some information from him about what might be going on. We're then introduced to the Crusader, who appears to be Detroit's resident superhero. Very strange orange and black costume. Yeah. Some ways kind of reminiscent of something Timberwolf from the Legion might have worn at some point. Yeah, I was thinking quite Wolverine, yes. Yeah, Jinx. Yeah. Mm. The Crusader has a skirmish with some car thieves. Elsewhere, Aquaman talks to a policeman who tells Arthur where to find Don Powers. That's the scientist friend that Aquaman was going to look for. Aquaman heads to Powers Investigations, the private laboratory that Don Powers has established. Aquaman meets with Don and discovers that Don is responsible for the satellite that's causing all the trouble. Don has created the satellite to combat Detroit's surging crime wave. Most criminal activity takes place at night, and as a result of the extra daylight that Don has created using the satellite, crime is down by a massive 38%. Aquaman is aghast and tells Don about the danger that the algae is causing and how the city is close to being evacuated, but Don doesn't see it as his problem and emphasises how he's actually helping the police. As far as Don's concerned, it's up to someone else to deal with the, the allergy problem. Don also mentions the Crusader and his efforts. Aquaman, however, dismisses the Crusader as, open inverted commas, a two-bit superhero who was turned down for Justice League of America membership for being too violent. Mm. Aquaman vows to destroy the satellite, but he's set upon by Don and his colleagues, who knock him unconscious and then dump him in a park. Don Powers, the scientist, is revealed, big surprise, to be the Crusader. Don's thoughts tell us that he's actually losing his sight to the extent that he's worried about going blind. The sight loss is affecting his crime-fighting abilities, making him ineffective at night, which is why he came up with a satellite. Don puts on his costume and heads out into action, with the intent of taking down the car thieves once and for all. After he deals with them, he'll be able to retire in a blaze of glory, and then he'll destroy the satellite. Aquaman wakes up on a park bench in time to rescue a little girl from the surging algae. And I suppose that's maybe the closest we get to what happens in the cover. But yeah. again, this is a very almost humanoid form that we see in the cover. Mm. But it's just a big sludge that seems to be moving around in the, the actual story. A news report prepares the city to evacuate. So obviously the algae problem is getting worse. Aquaman notices that a crowd has gathered as he makes his way from the park. And he discovers that the Crusader has died as a result of falling from a height after tripping over wires. The Crusader is unmasked and Aquaman recognises Don Powers. Aquaman rushes to Powers' laboratory and fights his way to the satellite destruct mechanism. As Powers' colleagues attempt to break down the door so that they can actually shoot Aquaman, Arthur makes his way to a massive control panel 
and as he looks down on it, he thinks, Don't know what will happen to me once that door's down, but that's hardly important now. This is the control panel. Now where's... Ah, here's the button I was looking for. And we see a massive big red button, which very helpfully has a label above it that says destruct. Aquaman continues to think, Don't know how the Don Powers I just met would have felt, but I do know what the Don Powers I used to know would want me to do. In the next panel, we see Aquaman's gloved finger pressing the destruct button. And the final panel of the story is captioned, And at that same instant, far from the surface of the Earth, there is a massive explosion as the satellite is destroyed. And a small caption says, The The end. end. And it was the end. Yes. That's how Aquaman ended, because the series was cancelled with that issue. It did come back again later on in the 70s. Yeah, much, much later. Yeah. And picked up the numbering with the next issue. Yeah. But as far as your average reader was concerned, that was how Aquaman ended, with this strange blowing up of a satellite. Not even a sound effect, because it was in space, silent space. Yeah. It's very odd. Issue one of Aquaman's own book was published on the 28th of November 1961, so he didn't even make it to 10 years. Well, but you know that's not bad, I suppose. Really, mm-hmm. given <laughs> given nowadays, I mean, how many series has he had? He did pop up actually in Adventure Comics for a little while before he got his own book back. We should mention that. That's true. I think a couple of those issues will fall into a remit, but we won't be doing the Aquaman stories. Yeah. But uh, you're right. As a final issue, it's astonishing because there's a real cliffhanger because mm-hmm. we don't know if these scientist guys are going to break down the door and blow them away or anything. Yep. That's just how it ends, or does it? Or ah, uh, yeah. It's very abrupt. What did you think of the Crusader? The Crusader was really interesting. He reminded me of the opposite of Dr. Midnight in that he has to have everything light uh-huh. so he can fight crime as opposed to Dr. Midnight who can fight crime in the dark. Uh-huh. So that's quite interesting. So I wonder if anyone's maybe compared them before DC Multiverse Historian. I wonder if anyone's ever thought about the similarities slash opposites to that. Yeah, that's a thought. Multiverse Historian, if you've got anything about the, the Crusader in your blog, let us know and we'll share mm-hmm. it. That'd be very interesting. I'm sure that I've heard of other characters called the Crusader. Yes, much later on, post-crisis, there's a character called the Crusader in Checkmates. Oh. Yeah, there's also, of course, American Crusader, who was a Golden Age character that Alan Moore used in his America's Best Comics range, which is really cool. In the Multiversity, the Crusader's a character from Earth-7. That's the kind of Marvel-like Earth. I think he's the Captain America equivalent. There have been Marvel characters called the Crusader. Okay. And of course, Archie Comics had a superhero team called the Mighty Crusaders. Ah. So yes, it does have a bit of history to it. And don't forget our very own Capes Crusader. Yeah, Batman, of course. Yeah. I mean, I was sort of wondering when I was reading it, is this... Is this some kind of Batman analogue, almost? Deliberate sort of... Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting to think what Steve Skeets, who wrote this story... We should also actually mention, this is the first comic drawn by Jim Aparo yes. that we've, we've done on the podcast. Love Jim Aparo. Absolutely love Jim Aparo. We will obviously put a few story highlight panels up on the social, mm-hmm. so you'll see some of it. And I would encourage you to try and track it down and read it, because it's a very interesting story. Yeah. I'm kind of intrigued as to Steve Skeet's idea. I mean, it must have been a very abrupt cancellation, because mm-hmm. the story, it stops, it doesn't really end, yeah. there's no resolution, but uh-huh. it's almost like they run out of time, but they still found time for a two-page story starring Aquagirl that's called <laughs> The Cave of Death, which features Aquagirl saving a little boy who's been sort of swept underwater, and if only the little boy was called Robin or Rex Tyler or something, <laughs> we could probably read that entire story. Yep. I'm utterly fascinated by just, again, we've talked about this already, but the disparity between what actually happens in the story and the cover. (laughs) You would expect to see Aquaman maybe fighting the Crusader on the cover, uh given that that's the real dramatic heart of the story. 
But in fairness, would you pick up that comic or would you pick up one that looked like that on the cover? I think that's pretty much what they're going for, is the most dynamic cover they could possibly come up with. Yeah. And that was great. But I mean, I can imagine a shot of Aquaman emerging from a puddle and the Crusader leaping off the, the top of a building or something. And, you know, in this issue, Aquaman battles the Crusader, introducing a new hero, blah, blah, blah. Because it's interesting that Aquaman's throwaway line about the guy being too violent. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. There's a whole other... Not quite world, but there's a whole other story that's obviously clearly taken place mm-hmm. off camera that we don't really get full details on. But we're given enough credit to can almost fill in the gaps for ourselves. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very interesting way of storytelling, I think. Indeed, and of course this is the only appearance of this crusader. <laughs> so it's not as if we've seen him being rejected by the Justice League, which is quite amusing. Mm, maybe, maybe when we write our DC comic. Yes, we could have his son take up the mantle of the crusader and be the young crusader. Or we can write the, the Hawkman, Hawkman team-up story that features the Crusader crossing their path and then Hawkman suggesting him for JLA membership and then they monitor him and they see how violent it is and they change their mind. Could be that as well. Don't know. There's some other aspects of this story that I really enjoyed. I, I liked opening up with the couple. It's what I like to call the, the Vengeance and Varos couple. Yes, Logopolis. No, Vengeance and Varos. <laughs> the Doctor Who story, Vengeance and Varos, is kind of framed by a couple who are basically just sitting there watching all the events unfold on their television. Yes, there's a bit of a Greek chorus, aren't they? Yes, uh-huh. and it's very much that kind of way because they open up the story and then later on it references back to them, which is quite good. Mm-hmm. The guests in this talk show that Aquaman is supposed to be on are quite amusing because you get Denise Lovely, who is just a generic pretty actress. Yes. Laura Van Skeet which is one of Steve Skeet's tropes that he always does, is he has someone named Skeet okay. in his uh, stories as often as he possibly can. Right. In a Kid Flash backup story in The Flash, Kid Flash encounters an Egyptian pharaoh called Rama Skeet. So <laughs> I think that's probably the biggest stretch he ever did of that one. Blimey. We also have novelist Neil Dennis. Who could he possibly be referencing there? <laughs> Mr. Denny O'Neill. Mm. <laughs> Or maybe Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams together, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably most likely, you know, given that they're, they're working the hard-travelling heroes at this point. Could well be. Aquaman's next on the list. Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas. So basically, he's actually got a proper superhero and monarch, and he doesn't even make the top of the list. Yeah. This guy's obviously kind of a play on, I suppose, Ed Sullivan mm. types, or mm-hmm. you know, maybe even Dean Martin, I suppose, isn't it? It's, yeah. um, it's quite interesting. You start the story and you think that this married couple are going to be the centre of it, or maybe they're going to get a visit from the Spectre or something with this journal (laughs) of judgment. But yeah, you do see them briefly watching television again later in the story, when they should be preparing to evacuate. (laughs) I don't know. It's too interesting in television. Mm. Yeah. Another thing I thought was terrific Mm -hmm. in this was the little sort of chapter headings that we get throughout. Yes. Very unusual. Because there's the massive big, the creature that devoured Detroit, Mm -hmm opening caption which is all the hyperbole you could ever wish for and again kind of echoes the cover but it's, it's a little inaccurate mm-hmm. but then the crusader is introduced with a massive crusader caption yeah and then a page is split with a caption saying the crime fighter there's another page that's split with the whole truth and that's where we see that don powell's putting on his costume yeah there's another moment for the brief sequence when aquaman fights the pile of sludge which looks nothing like what we see in the cover <laughs> aquaman versus the creature that section. Mm-hmm. And that lasts about a page and a half before we get No Blaze, No Glory, which heads the, the panel where Aquaman sees that the Crusader's lying dead on the ground. It's very unusual. I mean, I can't honestly say I feel like I've read a lot of Steve Skeet's stuff. Yeah. It's quite unusual, the different chapter headings like that throughout. That's not really something that we've seen before. No, it's quite experimental, yeah. And again, something that was really enjoyable. And uh, it does kind of frame Jim Apparel's artwork really well. I think it's uh, yeah. quite exciting. 
really like it. Also, I do kind of like how the Crusader just died by tripping over wires because he couldn't see. Presumably because of his failing vision. Yeah. You know, and that's literally gone. <laughs> it's quite tragic, and it's the fact that it happens off camera. Mm-hmm. Just like his introduction. <laughs> yeah. It's the fact that we don't see him tripping over the wires. Mm-hmm. It's, I love the way just Arthur sort of is like, oh, could today get any worse? What's going on with this crowd? Yeah. I'd better go and have a look. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Crusader's dead. It's tragic, I think is the word for yeah. it. And when he is unmasked yeah. by the, the guy in the crowd, he says, hmm, never saw that guy before. And then, of course, Aquaman recognises yeah. him. But that reminds me of, do you remember the, the issue of The Flash where Heatwave knocks out The Flash and then unmasks him to see who he is? And he's like, I no idea who this guy is. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, because obviously if, if Batman was to get unmasked, everyone would recognise Bruce Wayne. Yeah, uh-huh. If someone was to put a pair of glasses on Superman, they might recognise Clark Kent. But, you know... The only people that are obviously going to recognise Barry are maybe his close circle of friends or his colleagues, mm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Or any criminals he might encounter. Oh. <laughs> That's true. Dangerous. Yeah. Right, so, do you have anything else to say about Aquaman issue 56? It's just a shame it is the final story because I would love to see what any letter column said about this story. Yes, that's a good point. Which is quite sad. That's a good point. Yeah, what do people think of the Crusader? Mm-hmm. What do people think of the captioning? What do people think of the fact that the cover had absolutely nothing to do with what <laughs> takes place in the story? Yes, and Jim Aparo's sensational artwork. Yes. Although he had been on it for a bit uh, before this. So yeah. yeah. Now, we're going to move on to the second comic that we're going to talk about in this episode. The cover, actually, is it's a bit more relevant to, I suppose, what actually takes place in the story. Sort of. I mean, there's a gun in the cover. Anyway. We are jumping, as they used to say, we're jumping across town (laughs) (laughs) to the first sort of close examination of a Marvel comic that we're going to do on the podcast. Listeners, we're now going to talk a little bit about issue 72 of The Savage Submariner, which was published on the 18th of June, Paul McCartney's 32nd birthday, 1974. Mm. With issue one of The Submariner having published in February 1968, Namor managed more issues in a smaller period of time than Aquaman, so obviously mm-hmm. some Mariner must have been getting published a little bit more regularly. Listeners, you're probably wondering why we're talking about this issue of the Submariner. Equally, you may not. You may be quite well informed and know what we're going on about. But before we get started, Peter, can you remember when you first met the Submariner? Can I remember? I think it was in a British reprint of... It was either Fantastic Four or X-Men. I cannot remember which one. Okay. But certainly it, was a, it wasn't an original US comic. Right. I think it was Fantastic Four. He turned up and I can't remember the story at all, but I'm pretty sure right. that was the case. What about yourself? I have a very clear memory of having a copy of what I now know to be issue four of The Invaders as a little boy. Ah, okay. Obviously, which featured him prominently, along with Captain America, mm-hmm. and a different human torch to the one that I was kind of used to. Yeah. I remember was my, I've talked about this in the podcast before, that how The Invaders was my first sort of exposure to the, the legacy of Marvel's Golden Age characters. Mm. Yeah, because I have really clear memories of reading it on holiday in a caravan. I think we'd, I think we had our first dog by that point, so it must have been about 76 or 77 Long, long time ago. I want to say Southport, but I don't know if that's right. I need to check with my mum. If I can find a photograph of that summer holiday, listeners, I might put it on the, <laughs> I might put it on the socials. Or I might update my profile picture, or I might not bother. But no, we're now going to talk about issue 72 of The Savage Submariner, and Peter's going to tell you about the cover. The cover has a lovely red background. We've got Submariner, Marvel Comics Group, and approved by the Comics yes. Code on the cigar band at the top. 
We also, on this one, similar to the Aquaman story, we have got a quarter inset circle showcasing the main character. Instead of Aquaman diving, you get Subby, or Namor, standing there holding a trident. Now, at this stage, he's wearing his black leggings and he's got his kind of black waistcoat tunic on with yes. with the underarm wings, which I always liked. I love this costume. Yeah, this is my favourite Namor costume. Yeah, it's better than the trunks. I think this is so much cooler. Yeah. I like this one. It's a shame that he didn't really wear it at the Defenders at any point, but I seem yeah. to remember he wears it for quite a few issues of Supervillain Team-Up. Yes, that's right. Uh-huh. Other Bronze Age Marvel podcasts are available, oh, yes. obviously, There's listeners. Plenty of them. I would send you in the, in the direction of Defenders Dialogue or Werewolf by Night if I was thinking of a couple off the top of my head. Hmm. Anyway, I'm interrupting Peter. Yes, so Namor is on a dock. There are some unconscious people in front of him one of whom has got a hook in his hand and there's a gun lying on the dock as well. Namor's got a tattered tunic at this stage. He's obviously been in a bit of a scuffle. Mm. And behind him, rising out of the water, is a more human-sized version, kind of, of the creature from the Aquaman cover, pretty much. And this creature's wearing a metal headband and also seems to have a metal bracelet around its wrist. And it's reaching out for Namor. And it's saying, This is it, Namor. You are final defeat beneath the talons of the slime thing. Talons of the slime thing. I've got that bumper sticker or something. That, that sounds like a... It's a yeah. Tom Baker six-parter, I think. <laughs> or a season three episode of Voice to the Bottom of the Sea <laughs> or something. Is the slime thing related to the man thing? I don't know. We'll find out. Or the thing. Or the thing. Or the swamp thing. <laughs> Or she thing, or, you know. Anyway. <coughs> and Namor is rubbing the back of his head, and he's thinking, I must rise to face my monstrous foe, or two worlds are doomed. The surface world and Atlantis! Exclamation mark. Two worlds, eh? Two worlds, because obviously Namor is a man of two yes. worlds. <laughs> At home and neither. <laughs> so the first... Marvel comic we're covering has the word two worlds on the cover. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you couldn't make it up, listeners, could you? We're saying we're recording this episode roughly about a month before the release of Wakanda Forever, mm-hmm. listeners, so we've yet to have the, the joy of seeing how well he turns out and mm-hmm. on the big screen. So maybe by the time this episode has been released, we will have. Who can say? So I'm now going to tell you the story of issue 72 of The Submariner, in case you're wondering why <laughs> we're having this massive preamble. Story opens. Very impressive splash page. This story is written by Steve Skeets mm-hmm. and drawn by Dan Adkins and Vinnie Coletta. Colorist by L. Lessman. And Roy Thomas is the editor, so wow. this is the first, I think, the first credit for Roy Thomas on the podcast. Yes, apart from the letters that we've done from him right back at the beginning of the podcast, this is the first actual work. Interesting. Yeah, first comic that he's that he's worked on that we've done on the podcast. Obviously, we'll be hearing a lot more from Roy in the future. Fascinating. And a lot of that will feature me moaning. <laughs> Anyway. Hold on, hold on. So the first Roy Thomas-related story we're doing is a Marvel story. <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. It's good, isn't it? That is amazing. It's not what I expected things to play out, but anyway. <laughs> so, story begins as Namor swims through the sea and contemplates all the discarded rubbish that is littering the ocean. as a training shoe, a handbag, it looks like, and a car tyre. He considers the oil-polluted water, and after emerging from the sea under a full moon, Take a drink. He's also appalled by the pollution in the air, in the atmosphere. Out in space, we meet a globulous alien life form. Looks like an alleged pulsing green glob that drifts through the solar system before alighting on and entering an orbiting artificial satellite. 
And we now give you the caption for page three, panel five. Meanwhile, back on Earth. And we see a large red button, which is labelled Destruct. And this button is being pressed by a bluey-green gloved hand. And the bearer of this gloved hand is thinking... This is the control panel. Now, where's... Ah, here's the button I was looking for. And we cut to outer space, and there's a massive, soundless explosion as the artificial satellite is destroyed. Gosh. Debris from the satellite falls into the ocean on Earth, and the alien organism that just climbed inside the satellite has survived the explosion, and it falls into the water on a piece of wreckage. The alien observes the fish swimming around in the ocean, and over a period of two years, it builds itself a very humanoid-looking body from satellite wreckage and slime it finds on the ocean floor. It heads towards land. Namor is sat brooding by the docks, and he's observed by two very muscular and well-dressed young men. One of them named Bruce, and Bruce wears a very tight-fitting red shirt which is open almost to the waist, showing his massive pecs. His friend, whose name we don't get, wears a a black and orange striped shirt that looks like the sort of thing Bruce Wayne would wear if he was investigating rumours of death of a famous musician. Yes. Bruce doesn't like Namor being there. His friend tries to calm him down, saying that Namor ain't stealing no one's business. Bruce tells Namor to scram before attacking him with a flying kick and a massive, very interesting, very, very well-rendered full-page panel, which bizarrely is captioned with a quote from Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Which was not something I expected when we started doing the prep. Peter, do you think we should read out the caption that's attributed to Adolf Hitler, or would that qualify as presenting Nazi propaganda? What do you think? Many will be far more ready to take in a pictorial present. No, we're not reading it out. <laughs> <laughs> I have been watching a lot of a low low recently, so it's kind of in the zone for that, but no. Listeners, we will put this page on the social so you can read it for yourself. <laughs> there you go. Is this Adolf Hitler's first appearance <laughs> in the podcast? I don't think so. I can't remember. I don't think so. We've done at least one World War II story so far. He's certainly been mentioned. I don't know whether he's appeared, but that's fine. Yeah. Anyway, while Bruce is kicking Namor in the face, <laughs> alien creature emerges from the sea, and it frightens Bruce just as Namor starts fighting back. Namor punches Bruce into the sea, and Bruce's pal goes for Namor with the result that they also end up in the water, as well as the creature who they both collided with. Gosh. Namor fights with the creature as Bruce's friend reaches Bruce and manages to start bringing him up to the surface. As Namor's battle with the creature continues underwater, a caption reads, The creature that grew in the sea, the thing that crawled out of the bay, the monster that emerged because a man in Detroit pushed a destruct button and blew a satellite out of the sky. As the subby goes in for a killing blow, the creature looks at him and its eyes flare. Bright light, and a caption reads, To win, then, and to receive, as is due, the creature's wrath, anger that burns from its eyes, from its eyes, into his. With the result that Namor is blinded, homing in on the sounds of motion transmitted through the water. That's inverted commas, that's a quote as well, by the creature. Namor reaches the monster and grapples with it. The creature knows that Namor will not relent and detaches its mind. So its head flies off, basically, <laughs> leaving a headless body behind as it returns to a globular shape and flies up out of the water. It passes above Bruce's friend, who's standing, carrying Bruce. It's kind of implied that Bruce might have died. And the creature glows with energy that revives Bruce from death. 
Bruce's friend is delighted and suggests that they go back to his pad for a few drinks. He's also just bought a new professional wrestling magazine. Pregnant pause to let you consider that one, listeners. As Namor, in typical self-pitying Marvel superhero style, contemplates his blindness and regrets how he failed to try and understand a creature, the alien heads off back into space and out of the solar system. It flares brightly again and, with but a thought, quotation marks, returns Namor's sight. Namor determines to concentrate on getting back to Atlantis, which we are shown is in a very bad state. The issue ends with Namor swimming off and ruminating on what he has learned, and a caption observes, Yet there is none so blind as they that won't see, and perhaps through the battle past this homeward-bound Atlantean has gained in vision. And we're rounded out with a caption that says, Imperious Rex! Fantastic. So, a man in Detroit presses a destruct button and blows up an artificial satellite. And he's also thinking the exact same thing that Aquaman was thinking when he did the same thing back in his final issue. Yep. So, there you have it. Proof that DC and Marvel share the same universe, maybe. (laughs) Or there's just a parallel Earth where maybe they do. I don't know. But certainly, it's the first implicit DC-Marvel crossover. Yes. Given that they're both written by Steve Skeets, and given that this is also the final issue of Subman, I believe, at this time. Yes, it was. I think it's pretty much a given. Also, the time frame works as well, because although this story is a couple of years later, it took a couple of years for that creature to grow under the sea after the destruction of the satellite. So yes, the time frame does work. Yes, it just about works. And if we're being uberly pedantic, there's about three and a half years between the publication of the two stories. Yeah. But the, and the creature says two years. But no, it, of course it does. It's fascinating. You know, it's not a direct sequel. It's not like the creature is, is made of the algae that came from mm-hmm. Detroit or anything yeah. like that. It's a fascinating idea because I wonder how many people who read this issue of the Submariner at the time mm-hmm. got the reference point. You know what I mean? Because presumably Aquaman must have been cancelled because of bad sales yeah. or whatever. So there might not have been as many folk that read it. And of course, even fewer people, if this was the final issue of Namor's yeah. book, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably would have been reading this one. True. I think it's absolutely hilarious. And, and I can't think of anything quite like it in all my years of comics, apart from obviously the old Rutland Halloween parade. But we're going to get to that eventually, don't you? Worry yes, we certainly shall do. I've got a possible hypothesis for this. Okay, go for it. And that is the destruction of the satellite somehow caused a vibrational barrier thing to happen. (laughs) And it went from Earth 1 to, the first time we're going to say it, I think, Earth 616. What is the designation of the Marvel Universe? Yes, it's possible. I did have similar thoughts because didn't one of the Supergirl stories that we did a few months ago have something similar? Like, mm-hmm. was it an exploding satellite or am I misremembering completely? Yes, that's right. That was, there was uh, an exploding satellite in that as well. It is previous for this sort of thing, you know. Yeah. If you squint. <laughs> also, the green glob that's flying about here is a huge stretch. <laughs> okay. Could be a callback to the green glob that we've mentioned briefly before in the podcast, which was kind of like a a sentient cosmic wrong writer, as it were. (laughs) Yes. Was that House of Secrets, I think, or House of Mystery, wasn't it? One of those. I can't remember, but but we have mentioned it before. I'm sure it was. I think it was in the Supergirl episode when it was going through some of the other two world stories. Right. And it was a Green Glob one, but Green Glob also featured in the Angel Nape miniseries from the 90s. Of course, which we... Touched mm-hmm. on very briefly in the bonus features for our Inferior 5 episode. Yeah. That's right. So yeah, it's a huge stretch. Could possibly be that green glob. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it might as well be. Let's be honest. 
The thing I thought was fascinating, I I first read this story, listeners, in the 80s, because this story was reprinted in, and I'm holding it up for the benefit of our YouTube viewers. (laughs) (laughs) No, we don't, you know, that's a joke. (laughs) Holding it up for Peter's benefit, I've shown him it already. When I was a a neophyte Marvelite in the mid-80s and spending my my friendless free time on Saturday afternoons going round all the second-hand bookshops in Paisley, for there were a couple, I acquired at one point a copy of the Titans Annual 1977, the Titans being one of the many weekly comics that Marvel published in our country between the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. Nothing to do with the Teen Titans, obviously, of course. No, nothing (laughs) at all. And I'm fairly sure that I retweeted, I certainly retweeted it from my own account. It was something that either John Freeman or Lou Stringer posted a link to. It was a brilliant article that someone had done recently covering all the, the weekly sort of Marvel UK titles. And if I can find that tweet, I'll retweet it on the podcast again. Yeah. Listeners, if you're remotely interested, cool. it's very good reading. The Titans was basically a weekly Marvel title and it was unusual and it was sort of printed sideways, wasn't it? Yeah, uh-huh. landscape. Yeah, in as much as you got two pages worth of story on one page because of the way mm-hmm. it was printed. Very odd. But anyway, the Titans got a hardcover annual, at least for 1977, and it reprints the, the Namor story we've just talked about, but it also reprints a Captain America story from the, the middle of the whole Secret Empire story. I can't remember the issue off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but it's in the middle of that whole story with, you know, introducing Nomad and oh, yes, the X-Men uh-huh. Now also, because of the cover, and I will put this annual in the socials, listeners, so you can have a look at it, the cover features Captain America running towards the camera and Namor flying towards the camera and also the angel Marvel girl Cyclops and the Beast of the X-Men wearing their original blue and yellow uniforms because this hardback annual reprints the issue of the X-Men where they fight Frankenstein's monster. Oh, my goodness. Which I was delighted to find because I've been after... I wanted to read that story. I didn't realise I had it reprinted. There's also another <laughs> Captain America story drawn by Frank Robbins which I think is run about either 181 or 191 okay. which is the one where he fights Professor Faust or oh, he's yes. called in the airplane mm-hmm. and he gets sucked out the, the window after the, the glass breaks. Dr. Faustus. That's the guy. I think it's a slightly abridged version mm-hmm. of that but great value for... Oh, I can't tell you how much it is because the corner price has been clipped and I'm not going to explain that reference. The, the point I was making before I started talking about when I first read this story was the obvious interesting sort of subtext about the two young men who get caught up in the events, mm-hmm. stealing anyone's business, <laughs> professional wrestling magazine, tight shirts. Is this coding, I think, do you think? I think this is possibly the first gay couple we've had on the podcast, mm. which is really, really interesting. I mean, I'll be honest, I've read this story a long time ago. I've only dug it out for reading for this episode. But yeah, when I first read it... It kind of like went past me. What grabbed me when I first read it is the fact that Bruce is doing these kung fu moves, and I thought, well, this looks like Richard Dragon, kung fu fighter from DC. He does. Yes, that's right. He's kind of got the same colouring of yeah. his, of what he's wearing, and also his hair. I think you know, uh-huh. he's, he's very much like Richard Dragon. That's right. That's very funny. But I think this might have been before Richard Dragon. Just. I think so. I'm sure that Richard Dragon has a DC comic celebrates the bicentennial yeah. issue, so this must be at least about two years before. Yeah, it's interesting. Is that the the line he ain't stealing no one's business, Bruce? He's just sitting there alone. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm saying we don't need any crummy mutated fishmen hanging out. I'm not even sure they're a gay couple. Are they a couple of prostitutes? Basically, they may well be. In which case, are they the first prostitutes that we've had in the podcast? Probably. Yes, I can't think of any before. <laughs> No matter what's inferred from people's costumes or whatever. Uh, yeah. I don't know anything about Steve Skeets. 
you know, was he going all out because it was the final issue of this, of this series? Looks like it, yeah. Was he throwing caution to the wind? Mm-hmm. We're, we're making light of mm-hmm. it and we're talking about, you know, coding as it, as it was in sort of those sort of days. Yeah. The fact that Namor's hanging around the docks. I know, cliche. Yes, it's, it's very sort of cliched sort of humour. Cliche, but shorthand, you know, it's to tell the story. Yeah, there's certainly an implication, I think. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite poignant the way that, that Bruce is revived and him and his friend are actually, they're okay, yeah. but everything's all right. It's... I can imagine it ending with him having drowned and Nemo going off none the wiser and not showing any yeah. kind of sense of repentance at all. That'd be very Nemo-like, yes. One thing that really strikes me between this and actually the Aquaman issue is the fact that both Aquaman and Nemo are really kind of weak in those stories because Nemo, we've seen him go toe-to-toe with the Hulk and he's just mm. below the Hulk, whereas this guy on the dock is you know, giving him a run for his money. Without any powers. Yeah. Which is weird. And of course, in the Aquaman issue, Aquaman was being roughed up by those security guards and knocked unconscious. Yeah. Both of them can survive, you know, the depths of the ocean. They've got a thick skin, as it were, and, you know, they can look after themselves. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, Namor's up there as mm-hmm. far as power levels in the Marvel Universe. I mean, he, I mean, he fought the thing a good few times as well, I'd imagine, didn't he? Yeah, it's true, huh? It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one bit when uh, Bruce first spies Namor on the dock and he says to his pal... I'm telling you, that's Aquamariner or Submarine Man or something like that. <laughs> you know, literally saying this is going to be a crossover. You know, we're literally crossing over the names. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I really like that. That was cool. Yeah, that's a good bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the ultimate in-joke, isn't it? Yeah. This is a writer who has had to, to write the final issue of a superhero series featuring an aquatic superhero. <laughs> who rules Atlantis. That, yeah. <laughs> and he's once again having to write the final issue of a... Mm-hmm. An Atlantis ruling aquatic superhero, mm-hmm. and he's obviously just sort of thought, I could have a bit of fun with this. Yeah. We have no real way of checking exactly what's going on. I mean, I've I'd never heard of Steve Skeets until actually I first read something a few years ago about this crossover. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what site it was on, I can't remember if it was in an issue of Alter Ego or Back Issue yeah. or one of those sort of things. Mm-hmm. I remember being fascinated by it. So it's, I suppose, you know, unless we can turn up an interview with Steve Skeets where he talks about it, we haven't yeah. been able to so far, listeners, no, in our preparation. I've read a few Steve Skeets interviews, but none of them have mentioned this, unfortunately. Yeah. Which is a bit annoying. I think Steve must have known that this was the final issue. And he thought, right, I can have fun with this yeah. and literally copy and paste over from the final issue of the other one <laughs> and yeah. see see what I can do with this. Because I think that it's just, he's obviously having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and I wonder if Roy Thomas was in on the joke, you know, because yeah. the gloved hand must have been specified in the mm-hmm. script, presumably. Yeah. You know, as much as the script would have been, much, you know, because mm-hmm. as we all know, some stuff was still a bit, you know, was done Marvel style yeah. at this point. The destruct button's identical. Yes. Was Dan Atkins given given a copy of Aquaman 56 and said, been. look, you know... Do- <laughs> must have been. It's very funny, yeah. isn't it? Speaking of Dan Atkins, what did you think of the art in this issue? I loved it. It was actually quite complimentary of the of what Jim Aparo was doing, in a way. Yep. I, I really liked it. It was good use of, sort of light and shade. Mm-hmm. Very The fight scene moments are very dynamic. The you know the full page that we talked about with with Bruce kicking Namor is yeah. great. The the other panels of everyone else fun and yes, I liked it a lot. The creature looks brilliant mm-hmm. as well. I liked that work very much. What about yourself? Yeah, I found it quite spacious. Is that the best word to use? Obviously, a lot of the action in the Aquaman issue took place within the city, so it's a bit more claustrophobic. It's a bit more condensed. Mm. Whereas this one, we're out in space. We're on a big open dock. We're underwater. There's it's got much broader background landscape as opposed to you know just the you're inside a room there's a laboratory you're talking to someone in a tv studio yes uh, you know that sort of thing this felt a bit more broad 
so it's quite different, although it works really well along with uh, Jim Aparo's art because obviously there's a lot less detail in the backgrounds. For example, we've just got big clear purple skies on a lot of the scenes in the docks, whereas Jim is like drawing mm. the city in the background or everything in the room. Yeah. But that does emphasize the main characters, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's a very different type of story. Mm hmm. Obviously, I mean, it's basically just a whole big underwater fight scene mm -hmm. for most of it. A very well lit and very well yeah. rendered fight scene. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have that urban threat yeah. <laughs> sense that the Aquaman story had. Unless, of course, Dad can still draw on some backgrounds and Vince Coletta did what he was notorious for and just rubbed them out because he didn't want to ink them. Really? Yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's notorious for that. I hadn't heard that. That's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Especially if they're close to a deadline. He was well known as being one of the fastest thinkers, but that's why he's... Right. He would just get rid of what he didn't want to ink <laughs> as long as the story could be told. But there's some nice stuff. Like A lot of the underwater stuff is very dark. Mm -hmm. It's very shaded. That would have taken but, a while yeah. to, to ink in, you know, in some of the cases. The colours in this are fantastic, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great looking comic. This Marvel comic is a lot more adverts than the, the DC one that we did, I noticed. And we're in that era of Marvel that I love, when it's got at the bottom of every other yes. page an advert for a comic that yes. happens to be out at that time. For example, the first one is... The Green Goblin Lives Again. Or does he? On sale now, you know where. Let's try and find mm. another one, that's a good one. Who is the ultimate mutant? Find out in the Defenders number 15. Oh, so he must have had this suit in the Defenders then for a couple of issues. He must yep. have done. I was thinking, I didn't realise the Defenders had started by this oh. point because we're not a Marvel podcast <laughs> listeners. I haven't checked the dates. I have a full run of the Defenders, my favourite Marvel comic. Let's find another one. Vampire versus Elder Gods? It actually happens in Giant Size Dracula number two. Who is the power behind Omega? Find out in Fantastic Four number 150. Death trap for a kung fu hero, but watch Iron Fist smash through to victory. I wonder what issue that's for. The Iron Fist's own book started, but then I'm not sure. It may well have done. I'm sure mm. other people will be able to tell us. So, with all that in mind, we should probably mention to the listeners that Namor and Arthur Curry were not the only aquatic adventure type characters that Steve Skeets did some writing for. Isn't that right, Peter? It certainly is, yes. In the pages of Erie magazine which was published by Warren Publishing. I'm only peripherally aware of it. I've, I've, it's not really my expertise. No, me neither. I've never really investigated it too strongly. There was another aquatic adventurer called Targo, spelled T-A-R-G-O. And in our researches, Peter found an article on comic book resources, mm -hmm. which mentioned that Steve Skeets had written Targo in this magazine. And apparently there was one issue which used Steve's original script that was intended for issue 57 of Aquaman. So we tracked down a copy of this issue of ED Magazine to have a look. And I was struck by how much he looked like the man from Atlantis. Yes, he does. In the Patrick Duffy TV series. <laughs> it's hilarious. And it's an interesting story. The CPR article seemed to think that it concluded things that happened in issue 56 of Aquaman and that he did a much better job of resolving everything that went on in the series but it doesn't really the no. the one script that they talk about deals with Targo having to deal with a slightly underweight middle-aged man who has basically stolen the ring that is the source of Targo's powers and Targo has to go back to speak to his father to, to borrow another ring and then this guy that's stolen the ring ends up getting smashed and crushed to death when the, the whale that he's on slams itself into a boat <laughs> I can't really imagine the Aquaman story playing out quite no. like that, to be honest. So I, we're we're slightly refuting the assertion <laughs> of CBR that this story was, you know, it may well may well have been one that that Steve Skeets had prepared for Aquaman and he tweaked yeah. so that the the ring aspect was brought into the story, but it didn't really flow as a, a direct continuation, does it? No, it's definitely not a continuation. No, no, that's a huge stretch. 
However, the artwork in it is really nice. Yes, black and white, very moody, very, very detailed, very nice. Depending how much I've got in the way of bonus material for this episode, <laughs> I might stick up the cover of issue 38 of Eerie mm-hmm. and a couple of pages or panels. But, you know, we'll see how we go. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Now, as we said, unfortunately, there's no letter column chat because both of these titles were cancelled with these issues. Gosh. Mm. However, that doesn't stop you from writing to us to let us know what you think about this in our first little step into Earth 616. Yes, our first DC Marvel crossover. Yes, perhaps the first DC Marvel crossover. Mm. We're not going to completely sort of stick our neck out and say that it is because there <laughs> might be some other things that we're not aware of. Peter did make mention of a Jack Kirby story when we did our Jimmy Olsen Jack Kirby episode a few weeks ago that involved the character of Thor. But we're going to talk a bit more about that story a little bit further in the future, well, quite a bit further in the future, because there's an issue of Thor that we're going to do, listeners, would you believe? Yeah. Anyway. Indeed. So if you want to write to us and tell us anything else you think that we should cover in that pesky Marvel universe, then you can email us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you check out our social media, because we'll be putting up some lovely bonus material for this. Let's face it, we can post anything from Marvel. (laughs) 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 Pretty much now that we've opened that door. Yes, I've got a few things prepared. I will give my my special thanks to my Twitter pal, Matthew Purchase, for his assistance with one aspect of one part of the bonus features that are going up for this episode. It was much appreciated, the little assistance that you gave. So cheers for that. I also quite want to mention we got some really good feedback on that Jimmy Olsen episode that we did recently, the nice conversation with Martin Gray. Neither of us knew who Don Rickles was when we were much younger, but then I had the epiphany and remembered that he was in Kelly's Heroes, so I had at least a tiny bit of reference. Ah. Um, And we also... We had some nice general sort of feedback from folk who enjoyed that episode. And I'd like to give a shout out to Tony Esmond of the Awesome Comics podcast and the Never Iron Anything podcast. He's recently got in touch with us telling us how much he enjoyed our Jack Kirby special. So there we are. Thanks, Stones. Yeah, thank you, Tony. It's much appreciated. Thank you very much. We're always just glad to know that people are listening. Mm-hmm. Peter, where can people go to find the extensive bonus material that we put on our socials? I'm so glad you asked, David. On Facebook and Instagram, we're at the Earth 2 Podcast. And on Twitter, we're at podcast underscore Earth 2. And of course, you can go to our website where you can find links to all that and indeed all of our previous episodes. And that's theearth2podcasts.com And as I always say at this point, if you feel inclined, you could go to wherever it is you receive your podcast and give us a nice positive review. That would be much appreciated. If not, eh, it's alright, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, a bit of a, a red letter day. Our first Marvel comic, our first DC Marvel crossover. Yay! There will yep. be a few more mm-hmm. a few more Marvel comics and a few more DC Marvel crossovers to come. Yes. But that's all in the future, isn't it? It certainly is. And on that note... I've been Peter. I've been David. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again very soon on The Earth 2 Podcast. Podcast. Imperious Rex. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. I'd quite like to do Namor so I can do Marvel Angst acting. Do we read, Peter, do we read out the caption from Alfred Hitler? Alfred, Alfred Hitler? Freudian slip. Let me try that again. <laughs>